As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to No Breaks, a Formula One podcast from the No Dunks, Inc. Classic Factory, proudly a part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Whether you're joining us live in the Slipstream team here on YouTube or you're part of the pod squad listening later, thank you very much. I'm your host, Trey Kirby. I'm joined today by Graydon. We got JD over on the pit wall making the right calls, and we're very excited because we got a special guest for today's podcast, IndyCar driver and fellow Athletic Podcast host, J.R. Hildebrand. J.R., thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us today. Yeah, of course. Great to be on with you guys. What's uh, more high stress for you, driving a race car 200 miles per hour or hosting a podcast? Uh, it's definitely the podcasting. Been <laughs> <for sure. laughs> doing the race car driving for way longer. You, you, so. <laughs> you heard it here first. What we do is 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 more challenging than race car driving. That Very is high easy. stress. <laughs> Very high stress. Yeah, I know. At the end of uh, one of these shows, I feel like I've been driving for at 200 miles per hour, dripping sweat, <laughs> yeah. frail, <laughs> getting out of the seat. Graydon's got to like carry me over and weigh me after every single one of these shows. Uh, but it's good to good to be on level ground here. Uh, Jr. Been doing a lot of research. Obviously, getting ready. for for the interview, looking at your social media. What kind of a car are you driving on like a regular day? I feel like it's either uh, like the fanciest McLaren or the sexiest classic car of all time. Well, my daily is a, is a 2013, 2014 um, Cadillac CTSV station wagon. Okay. So that's that's kind of my, uh, my jam. Um, I've got, but I also in the driveway have a 1960 Cadillac Coupe de Ville that's like bagged and uh definitely definitely a good cruiser for, are you, are you a cadillac nice man day, so. are we is that like is you that know, a thing are we a gm I, loyalist here in general or no i guess I, so i i definitely would say i grew up as a gm uh, in a gm family um I, I don't i don't altogether love like just cadillacs in general but <laughs> it just happens that those two cars uh in particular are have always been really high on my list the ctsv to me was always like from the first time i drove one was just like the perfect kind of sleeper, um, real utility, but six speed clutch, easy to, easy to swing sideways and do, do, <laughs> do big drifts through burnouts in a, in a station wagon. So, um, that was kind of as a, 
as, as I think race car people always people probably think that race car drivers are always just like hauling the mail on the street. I'm I, I'm definitely more on the like give me as much fun as possible <laughs> under like 65 miles an hour, you know. Yeah. So um, those cars both both kind of fit the bill. I didn't me. know that you could uh, drift in a station wagon. Graydon and I I'm both a- drive Jetta wagons, but every time we pull up here, it's just you know standard put it in brakes I guess we gotta practice wagons. I'll be trying it on the way home yeah. <laughs> I'll be trying it on the way home <laughs> yeah we'll see this might be my last podcast because of that reason but yeah. I'll give it a shot yeah this is uh, <laughs> this podcast is definitely gonna be like the first time I saw Fast and Furious and we all did burnouts in the parking lot afterwards <laughs> we're gonna be trying the craziest moves going home after this but I, I'm excited to hear that an actual race car driver would drive a station wagon so I don't feel uh, quite as uh, quite as definitely. dadly when I'm rolling around Definitely. So, and then today is also, can I bring up one other thing before we jump in? Today is also, it's an important day, which is, it is the, uh, it is the anniversary of your last <laughs> win in the Indy Light Series in 2009, right? It's it, at Sonoma. Uh, That's right. You know, you, you were standing on the top step. Look at you there. Like a, little, like a yeah, young, little, little a young Twitter, man there. Little Twitter, Twitter pick out there. there. I like it. <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah. That, a little grainy, <laughs> a little grainy, but it's the best we could do on, on short notice. Wait, okay. So take us back to this day. Well, I, I'm not going to, I'm just going to come clean and admit. I wasn't watching that race. I wasn't even that into motorsports. Yeah, I, I, I don't blame you. Yeah, <laughs> what what happened that day? What was any what, highlights of yeah, the so, 2009 I mean, Indy, Lights, Indy Lights race? It's 2009. Yeah, it feels feels like it was it was forever ago now. Um, 2009 Indy Lights. I was racing for uh, the Andretti Green Indy Lights team at the time. Now Andretti Autosport. So Michael Andretti's uh, Indy Lights team, and. Uh, yeah, it was my second year in Indy Lights. At this point in the season, I think we still had two races to go maybe after this or after after this race in Sonoma. But I, I'm from the Bay Area, so it was my home track. Um, stuck it on the pole by a pretty good margin, so had a big, big pole run. And uh, I was really battling my teammate that year. Uh, there was a couple other drivers that were in the mix and who and another a different driver actually ended up finishing second in the championship. But um going pole lights to flag in this race uh was was really like kind of locked me in like I, I basically just had to show up to the last two races to win the championship and um you know at that time obviously and, and still today just like junior formula championships across the globe whether you're whether it's nascar or, or uh f2 gp2 um you know it has has a huge impact on your ability particularly if you're not funding you know you don't have the means to fund your own rides or your own um you know full-time gig at the next level up winning for me winning the indy lights championship made a huge difference in terms of being able to make that step so i actually ended up at the end of that year you know i think podiumed maybe the last couple events so so locked it away kind of without any problem ended up spending the next year after that in 2010 you know what I what I liked to call at the time being a free agent basically just meant I was an unemployed race car driver for another year. Um, but in the IndyCar series, there wasn't a lot of movement in terms of the driver. You know that you see this happen. You know in F one just as much as you see it anywhere else. Like you kind of need for you need for somebody to retire or guys to move around their contracts to end um, in order to make that step up. So I actually at the end of this 20, 2009 season went on to um, sort of win in a shootout uh, a three-day f1 test with force india um considered 
going to Europe. Then I knew I wasn't going to get an indie, have an IndyCar ride for the next year, just because there wasn't any move, driver, you know, movement in the market. Um, considered racing GP2, ended up staying in the States, did some sports car racing, ran the 12 hours of Sebring, um, and ended up filling in for a, an IndyCar driver that got hurt about halfway through the next year in 2010. That that sort of led me to being hired on full time by Panther Racing with National Guard sponsorship in 2011. So this was kind of the the end of my Indy Lights, um, you know, trajectory, but but the beginning of everything else after that. Okay, that there are so there are so many things just mentioned there that I gotta that I like want to ask about. But but the first <laughs> one I think for given that this is an F1 podcast is we have to ask about. The, the testing in in Spain and I think I mean Jerry you might be the first guy I've ever talked to who's actually driven an F1 car I mean I don't know so I so I mean what was that like what's testing like what are the conditions like how much time do you get out there on yeah. track like walk us through what that experience is like to to test you know to test uh for Force it's pretty India. crazy I mean this was you know this was in yeah 2009 so you know coming almost 15 years ago, right? So more than a decade ago. And I, and I think that this was the start of when things, you know, that era was when simulation was really starting to come into its own, like team, different teams were starting to have their own simulators, uh, but not quite to the level that it is today. Like Force India at that time had a technical partnership with McLaren. Uh, this was before... Mercedes was its own team. So McLaren was kind of the stronghold of the Mercedes engine program at the time. Um, and so, you know, Force India didn't have its own simulator. The way that this whole test and and shootout kind of situation worked out was I was among a, uh, a small list of drivers that had won different junior formula championships or were in some way, shape or form kind of not, not, current F1 drivers at the time. Um, I think, I think maybe there was a couple of drivers that had maybe some Indian heritage that because of the VJ Malia ownership of the team that they were included in this whole thing, um, that they basically had the, the lot of us and, and we didn't really, we didn't know who the other guys were. We didn't, you know, we were all kind of kept separately. I like, I still don't know who else was, who all was involved in the test. Um, wow that we we basically each got these two sessions in the McLaren simulator, which at that time was like the gold standard of F1 simulators. They were the first ones to just push all the chips in the middle of the table to develop their own their own simulator. I mean, it was it was a, a way a way beyond and way above what what anybody else had already developed at that time. So sort of commonplace now to see the same type of stuff in every, you know, we, we use one for the IndyCar series that's derived from the same technology that McLaren was using, you know, 10 years ago. But um, at that time there were, these were much fewer and further between. So, um, you know, it was kind of crazy at, at that time. I mean, when I would learn, when I was going to go learn a track in the IndyCar series or Indy lights or whatever, like, you know, I'd be playing iRacing or R factor or something on my like, crappy you know at home <laughs> steering wheel and stuff and so then you get to you get to mclaren and and this was you know the ron dennis era of mclaren so everything was same facility as it is now but maybe a little less 
you know, in, inviting. To, yeah, it was uh, intense. Yeah, Ron was famously um, a little intense. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, we show up there with the Force India staff. You know, I was super jet lagged. Like, you know, I, I didn't really know what the deal was. They gave you a good rundown. And the Force India guys were awesome. The engineers that I worked with, the the, the engineer that I, this is fast forwarding a little bit, the engineer I ended up working with at the test is uh, GP, who's Max's, uh, Max Verstappen's engineer now. So that's kind of a, kind of a cool side note, but anyway, we, we showed up and basically we had, we had like two and a half hours or something to run at, uh, Barcelona, which was, it, I guess was just to get used to the simulator and whatever. For me, that was a, that was a hassle because I didn't know that that was going to be a part of, I didn't know any of these tracks. (laughs) I didn't know that Barcelona was going to be where we started out running. So I didn't like, didn't know it at all. Like I had not been, been on even my lousy (laughs) at home simulator to, to get the test for it. But, but it's funny that in Europe, that's where every, you know, that's where every junior formula uh, championship goes and runs. Like they do tons of testing there. So all the other guys were like way better in that first, in the first bit of this whole thing, I was just trying to kind of like wrap my head around the whole thing. And, I guess the other part of it that's worth noting is at that time, the difference in technology between a, an Indy car and an F1, like the F1 car today in terms of the you know rotary knobs and the number of things that you can adjust, engine maps, you know diff maps, all of this stuff is not that different than it was back then. So that in F1 has not evolved substantially over this period in time. In IndyCar, we kind of have like all of that stuff. Now we didn't have any of that back then. Like maybe you had, maybe you could run a lean mixture in the race. And in an Indy Lights car, there was one button on the steering wheel for the radio and that was it. So (laughs) there was, this was like a a significant divide in terms of just everything that was going on here at the time, but got in the sim, kind of got, tried to, you know, get up to speed basically. It was just kind of learning the whole process of the thing in my first bit. I, had, I think I came back the, the next day or something to run at Hareth, which was actually where the, the test was going to be, which I had watched a ton of video and done, you know, kind of done whatever I could to get up to speed in that. Um, went back, you know, slept, tried to like get my jet lag in order. I think I walked from the hotel to Woking. Like, you know, this was pre, pre-Uber. pre They look like at you pre- crazy when you showed up <laughs> walking. They're like, walking like past uh, the big they're looking for a driver. This, you know, with his, like, kit or whatever. Uh, this American dude, like, I don't know. And so uh, it's funny thinking about all of this. Like, how bizarre was that? Like, I'm sure the, I'm sure the guy at the gate was just like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> Most, uh, get this most people probably here. drive up. Yeah, most uh, people probably have a car, I think, at McLaren. <laughs> I think I was too young to, like, rent a car. Right? Oh, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially internationally. So anyway, so uh, go do the test was was one of the two fastest guys. So Paul Duressa and I were the two fastest guys at Hareth in the sim. And so we got the we got to share the three-day test. And so And it was, like, I think it was basically as simple as that. So uh, he and I, you know, a, a month or so later, or whatever, you know, I came back to the came back to Europe to do do a, you know, seat fit and do all this kind of stuff, um, and then we went to Hareth and 
And yeah, I mean, I was, so my approach to the F1 car at that time, there was a couple of, couple of IndyCar guys who had been in an F1 car somewhat recently. So Marco Andretti, Tony Kanaan, uh, Scott Dixon had spent quite a bit of time in the Williams F1 car, kind of like five or six years prior or something. So he and I trained together in Indianapolis. Um, he was, you know, super helpful and kind of just helping me understand like what am i what am i just roughly needing to be prepared for here like what's what's the physical nature of this thing how do the teams work you know i'd spent a lot of time around i had tested the the andretti you know andretti green indy car a number of times at this point as their indy lights driver but you know there's just a lot of things that are different about going and racing in europe and the way the teams operate and all this kind of stuff and so uh, i went over there as prepared as i could be and my mo was basically like I know that this thing, you know, this was pre-hybrid, pre, you know, cars getting giant. So it's this little super lightweight, super nimble, super high down force, um, naturally aspirated, you know, whatever, just complete ripper of a of an F, of an F1 car, even compared to today. I mean, those cars are still super fast compared to today's cars. Um, and my MO was basically like, I'm there's going to be a lot of stuff here that I don't that there's no Paul Duressa was a was a Mercedes a McLaren Mercedes like junior guy yeah he had already driven the car he'd driven at Harath like I, you know I, I wasn't really in the mindset that I'm here to compare myself to him I was just trying to I was basically like I want to I want to make sure that by the end of this three days I know what it's like to be on the limit um, in high speed corners, like where this car really does what it does. And, and I just want to know what that feels like basically. And so, um, over the course of the three days, it was a lot of baptism by fire, just of all kinds of stuff. You know, you're going through the same type of program that the guard that they would still run. Now you're going through all these different, um, you know, at that time, the transition from 2009 to 2010 in F1, one of the biggest things was that they were not going to be refueling anymore during pit stops. And so, you know, they were doing all of this different, you know, adding ballast, adding, and it's a ton of ballast to the car to kind of make the difference between qualifying weight to race weight. And, you know, they're running they're The team was just running through the program that they would have been running through if anybody had been the car basically. Um, so just like, just like, I think some of these, uh, you know, American guys that are in the conversation today, Colton Herta, um, Alex Pillow. Pato Award, you know, going and getting their F1 tests out of IndyCar. I think one of the biggest differences for these guys, same as it was for us, for, for, for myself and Paul at that time was, you know, yeah, you're going to be in the car a lot, but you're only going to get like one run all day. That's actually soft tires, low fuel engine, fully wicked, you know, in IndyCar, you just don't have all of these different settings. So whenever you're out, you know, yeah, there's going to be a better time of day. There's going to be you know, there's going to be some particular run that's probably your best chance to go fast, but you're going to have a bunch of runs to kind of drive the car in roughly that like set of settings um, or that combination of settings. Um, whereas in the F1 car, it was kind of like, okay, you're running through all kinds of different stuff, getting used to all, t- all types of different things when the car is not really at max output. And then there's going to be some point where here you go. Like you better make the most of it, you know? (laughs) And so that was, it was just an interesting, it was a whole different dynamic from that perspective. And I, I unfortunately kind of didn't, it was like wet sort of the first day or it was like drying in the first morning when I was in the car. 
Um, I had a difficult time. You know, one of the biggest differences that I was not totally prepared for was at that time. It's, and I think still today, but the, since the cars have gotten so much bigger and and now certainly the 2022 car, you know, the, the tie, the wheel size has grown at that time, you know, with the 13 inch wheels, you know, IndyCar is a 15 inch rim doesn't seem that much different, but the stiffness of the sidewall is substantially different. So the F1 car, just the deflection of the tire, even at low speed is massive. You know, you see those, those kind of shots of the rear tire, you know, as the car is going through the corner and you just, you know, the, the inside, the sidewall, the inside sidewall, the rear tire is moving from like on the rim to like way over here. You know, I mean, the car is just moving around a lot, just with the tire deflecting, not actually even like tire slip, just tire deflection. Um, you know, that was something that I hadn't experienced at all coming from racing in the U S and part of that is since we race on ovals, just the, the stiff, the general tire construction that we work with, regardless of the wheel size, um, is just much stiffer. Like the sidewall is way stiffer. Um, so there were some things just in terms of the general behavior of the car that just being in the car for like three half day sessions was not enough for me to completely wrap my head around. But by the end of the third day, um, you know, I will still, Paul ended up going on to be the, the test driver the following year and then got the race seat the year after that. Um, you know, and, and I, I, the one feather that I do still have in my cap is that I was a little quicker than him <laughs> in all the fast corners, you um, go. you know, dur- by the end of the test. So it was, it, it was just a really amazing experience, uh, a lot to consume coming out of indie lights to go to that level and go do that. <laughs> but, um, looking back at it, you know, it was Daniel Ricardo's for, I think first test with, with Red Bull, he topped the charts at that, at that session. Um, Nico Hulkenberg there, Marcus Erickson got his first test, uh, at the same, at the same test. Um, wow. you know, so it's, it's cool even just looking back at that and kind of thinking of the timing of, you know, where all of these different guys that we all found ourselves there together, um, on that, on those handful of test days have come from, come since then. So question. So you mentioned, okay, so there's like two dynamics here that I want to talk about, which is kind of like the indie car, the indie to F1 pipeline. And then like the, the reverse of that, right. Which is that we have seen, you you mentioned earlier, you know, Palu, Pato Award, Colton Herta, these guys, you know, there's, I feel like there's always a, a, a small handful of guys that are in Indy that are under discussion as possibly making the leap to F1. That doesn't happen nearly that often, you know. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, there actually are a decent amount of F1 guys that do come over to Indy, you know, uh, Grosjean or Ericsson or other, you know, there's there's a few guys uh, that have spent some time uh, in Europe racing or I guess, you know, F1's more than just Europe, but, but you know, it, over there. And I, I always wondered about that because I, I had always perceived the barrier, I'd always perceived the barrier to making that transition to being that, in the U.S., the prominence of stock car racing or oval racing as being meaningfully different, and therefore it's kind of it's it's not a great it's not a great pathway into F1. But at the same time, these indie guys, I mean, it's open wheel racing, it's it's road courses, it's tracks. I mean, what, what, why why do we see why is it hard for guys to make the leap that way? Especially given that seemingly there is always this buzz around the commercial viability of an American driver. If you could just get somebody in there, it seemingly, although I, you know, I would, you know, 
I, I think we could debate whether that would actually be the golden ticket that people think it is. But I, but yeah, you know, the, I agree with that. You know, so but you know, what's the? Why is it just hard for guys to break through that way? Oh, well, I think it starts. Well, I mean, the, one of the general differences is just accessibility. There's a big difference in accessibility when you compare the two directions uh, in Formula One for anybody i mean right like f2 f2 champions have a hard time breaking into f1 sometimes um part of that is just simply because there's a limit to how many cars can be on the grid so they have a basically a charter system like a franchise system and every team can only run two cars and so there's a limit to the number of year year to year there's a limit to the number of teams the number of seats the number of available openings and because of that there's a lot more uh, equity basically for the teams and the drivers and the sponsors to kind of like have all of that lined up. Whereas in IndyCar, none of those things are the case. There's no franchise system, good, bad, or otherwise. Like for the team, I think IndyCar talks about this all the time. Like would would IndyCar team ownership be more valuable if there was a limit to how many teams there could be like there is an F1? And NASCAR has a slightly different version of the same thing. Formula E is a franchise system. Um, it's it's becoming more and more common that you don't just have this completely open-ended, like teams can run as many cars as they want and stick whoever they want in them and and whatever. But the upside of that for many cars, or you know, if you kind of look at the championship, is is that it creates a lot more accessibility for drivers to, you know, F1 Jimmy Johnson maybe is a better example, just in this particular sense of he basically just created his own seat at Ganassi. So he's bringing the funding. It more than funds, it funds, it funds the team to the point that it's actually additive to the rest of their entries to have Jimmy Johnson there as the fourth car at Ganassi. Um, And so from Chip Ganassi's perspective, all right, Jimmy's paying for himself there what maybe there's some value in having seven time nascar champion here on our team either from a performance perspective the kind of perspective and um, experience that he brings to the table maybe there's a uh, kind of marketing and pr advantage to have there's a visibility advantage to having a seven time champ here maybe simply it's just a economic advantage that He's not only bringing enough money to fund his own deal, but he's actually bringing a money, bringing enough money that his deal is profit making, and so that profit goes, gets spread across the other three cars. Uh, these are just things that you like. This is a conversation that you wouldn't be having about F1. Like it's not possible to do this based on the way that the kind of model for F1 uh, you know works and exists. So there's some there are, there are more barriers just to entry period because of the the business model of formula one basically the team model the team structure um from that perspective the other thing that definitely factors into this is just a more general like there's there is a whole pipeline of very good and talented and experienced and prepared drivers coming through f3 f2 you know, to F1. So it, it, we're, we're, we're watching this unfold right now that Zach Brown has Colton Herta, Pato Award, and, and you know, theoretically Alex Pillow under contract, basically, as a part of the, you know, McLaren racing family or whatever you want to call that. Some of them are racing for McLaren, Pato's racing for McLaren in the IndyCar series. Colton's not. 
Alex is somewhere in between. Um, he's under contract with two teams and it's a total mess. Um, the, uh, but you know, it's, it's kind of like, it appears as though Daniel Ricardo is on his way out. Um, they, they seem to have kind of forced his hand from that perspective. Uh, none of those IndyCar guys are going to end up getting that seat because they're getting Oscar Piastri to do it. And, and that in, in a lot of respects makes sense. Like Oscar is kind of the heir apparent to whatever the next available. He's the best guy. Most of the F1 teams view him to be the next guy, the, the best available guy for their seat. McLaren's More pretty good at having wanted him guys. McLaren's pretty good at having guys who have they a contract a with another team though, too. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. and Alex, but guys where they have like a, a couple a scenarios where it's like, they um, don't really know whether they've got the guy. I'm just, I want to know. I want you to know just because I'm wearing the shirt does not mean that I am under contract. With <laughs> yeah. Just to clear yeah. the air here. Um, but the, the long and the short of it here is, um, you know, there's, there are fewer seats available year to year. There's fewer ways to create those opportunities. There are a lot of guys that are in, in at least some respect more prepared for everything that is F1 than an IndyCar driver would be. And none of that has anything to do with talent, right? So I, I personally am a, in a, am a firm believer that if you gave Colton Herta two years, he, if you gave Colton Herta one year, he will surprise the hell out of people in one year. Does that mean he'll be as good as Lando or, you know, be finishing on podiums or whatever? Probably not on the average, but people forget that Colton and Lando were teammates back in like formula four and Colton was arguably faster than Lando was when they were teammates. He just like crashed more often, basically. <laughs> um, so I think what, you know, when you look at this, when you look at like the, the, the current F1 is kind of one of these, one of these things that if you're not competing for a championship, who cares? Like if you can have, if you had a guy, you'd take a guy that, you know, Charles Leclerc is unfortunately in championship mode at this point. So the fact that he's goes from like winning races to crashing out of races is, is like a big, a big downfall kind of, because he's theoretically, he should be in contention for championships. If that was anybody else outside of the, outside of the top few teams, you'd take that any day because that's just how you accrue points in F1. You, you know, you, you shoot for, you shoot for being at the top and you take that and being out of the points as opposed to being like P10 every weekend. And so um, I guess I think from a talent pers- it's it's not for lack of talent. It's not for lack of, these guys as drivers being able to adjust to the things that, um, you know, make F1 different than IndyCar. IndyCar is as stacked from a driver talent perspective as it's ever been. I mean, I, I think you could make the argument that there's a handful of guys that given the right opportunity, given the right time, given the right adjustment period to F1 could make it. But um, there's just a lot of other things that get in the way. And I think, it's it's my opinion you mentioned it just a second ago that i'm not sure i think the f1 teams rightly are not overvaluing um the benefits of having an american driver because yeah. yes we're having this we're having this like big uptick in uh attention being paid to formula 1 in the us you know i think rightfully so we 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 attribute that to drive to survive but 
I, I don't think that I think that that's kind of like it's just like anything. If you had an F1, if you have an American guy that gets in a good car and can go go really compete. Now that's something. Yeah, but, Americans love a winner. But just right? like an American an being on the champion. grid, I don't think is altogether that big of a deal in terms of Formula Formula One doesn't need that. I guess I, I think that's right. I think if you had an F one champion, that's that's a different story. Or a guy who's if you if you've got the next Mario Andretti, yeah, then, then it could be big. Okay, yeah. then it makes a huge difference probably. But, but I think you see that just in sticking a guy on the grid. Yeah. I'm not sure that that's a. a, a extreme difference maker so you answered one of my questions in there which i was going to ask a little bit about if you see any kind of meaningful difference in the talent or quality across some of these series and i mean the top series i don't mean like you know as you're coming up to the junior levels is there anybody and i think it sounds like the answer is you you would say fundamentally no given enough time in the right you know in the car great drivers would figure it out across these different kind of modalities or like ways of racing but like is there anybody who it, like who you just any form of driving where you're just like especially amazed by the one that the one that I'll, I'll say my own thing the one that I always am blown away by even though maybe it's not at the height of its popularity is endurance racing right where I'm just like yeah. it's incredible that you're that you're driving you know at this pace over the duration of time which you've done some endurance racing right you've done the Le Mans series and stuff like that I mean is there anything like is that do you find that to be true or is there anybody where you're like this is ac cuz formula 1 loves to tout itself as the peak of motorsport right I mean it would it would love to lay claim to that in the background I think most people involved in motorsport don't think of it quite as simply as that or they don't yeah, so, yeah, yeah sure yeah, you know, they got a like, lot of buttons though yeah the there are a lot wheel. of buttons I mean there's a lot of like stuff a, on the steering wheel yeah for sure um, which, if you're talking about if, they we're have rated, the most if we're stuff. rating stuff by how many things you can mess with on the steering wheel then F1 is definitely the pinnacle <laughs> yeah. um I mean, I, I would say I, I do believe that I do sort of subscribe to the idea that Formula One is the pinnacle of motorsport. Now, is it the pinnacle of motorsport with respect to everything about motorsport, including, you know, absolute driver talent? I, I think maybe maybe not um, or or not necessarily, I guess I would say. Um the beauty of motorsport is that there are so many different disciplines that fit under this larger banner of, of what we call auto racing. Right. And even, you know, extend that to two wheel. Right. And so, um, you know, I think that rather than getting into a debate about who I think is the greatest driver or what, what discipline I think, um, you know, enables you to extract that, you know, in a different way or in a more obvious way, um, I guess I would I would preface all of this by saying, unfortunately, we have gone through this shift from the 60s and 70s uh, to now, where it has, for a lot of reasons, and I per, I am a believer personally that and we could this is a whole another conversation where I think this is starting to be unpackaged a little bit, but um, for a lot of commercial reasons, racing has become uh, very specialized. And so, whereas in the 60s and 70s into the 80s, you had Mario, Jackie Stewart, Jim Clark, Parnelli Jones, Dan Gurney, um, you know, AJ Foyt, all these guys that, I mean, they drove everything and they kicked everyone's ass in everything, right? And Mario Andretti has won the Indianapolis 500, the Daytona 500, 24 Hours of Le Mans, uh, a Formula One World Championship, like, that to that to me is like there's 
he can lay claim to being among the top three greatest drivers of all time. You could make the you could make a very reasonable case. Mario Andretti is the greatest race car driver of all time. That was going to be and, a question of mine. As I was going to say, I was going to make you maybe. I'm not going to force you, but who's the goat in all of this? And but, I guess I think know. if you asked if you asked Mario, he would probably he would probably add in some of those guys that he raced against that operated the same way. He would say. On, on his day, you did not want to line up in basically anything at any track against Parnelli Jones. You know, like yeah. if if Parnelli was like ready to rock and roll, like you were fighting for second. So AJ, the, the, you, the, he, he could say the same thing about AJ Foyt. He could say the same thing about Jim Clark. Um, unfortunately, some of those guys didn't have long enough careers for one reason or another. AJ and Mario did. Um, Jim, because he passed away. Parnelli, because he hung it up. Some of these guys just didn't race. I mean, to think about Jim Clark and Parnelli Jones, those two guys in particular, looking at what they did in like basically less than 10 years or a, or a 10 year span is just absolutely mind boggling to have asserted themselves as being one of the greatest drivers ever to get behind the wheel of a race car. And that, and that contemporary drivers would still say that about them now, not even having seen them drive. Um, it, it, it does say something about this kind of attitude of these racers from back in that time period. So I bring that all up basically just to say we don't have, besides Fernando, and there are some guys in the U.S. that operate a little more this way. Scott Dixon has won the 24 Hours of Daytona. He's won Le Mans in category. He's you know he's driven at the Bathurst 1000. He's you know done all kinds of different stuff, but not not quite across the complete breadth of motorsports at the highest level the same way that drivers did back back in that day and again a lot of that was due to the accessibility of good you know can can i can a guy go do one formula one race no it doesn't work that way anymore um but that i guess i i say all of that to say i think there's a lot of things that Lewis, any of the top F1 drivers, it would take them a long time to figure out how to be as fast as Sebastian Loeb in a WRC car. Yeah, um, sure. It would take those guys for, for open wheel drivers to transition to sports car racing is actually pretty straightforward. It's basically, but basically just because the cars are quite similar, like a prototype race car is sort of a reskinned uh, formula car. Um, a lot of them have. ABS or traction control or some of those things that make it even more approachable to just jump in and go. Um, but you know, you think about, I mean, I, I, when I think about motorsport, it expands, it extends a long way beyond that. We're talking about like King of the hammers and Baja and, you know, mentioned WRC. These are all things that are dramatically different from anything that any of these guys. And one of my favorite events that, you have done that I, I have to ask about, which is Pikes Peak. I love yeah. a good hill climb because, I mean, it's right there in the name. It's like let's just get up the hill. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. like, I, like I, I love, like I, I mean, what was so? I'll, I'll ask about that. Like, uh, what, what was? I mean, what, I mean, what's doing Pikes Peak? Like, are you going back this year? Is that right? Are you gonna go? Are you gonna? The race plan this is year? to go back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I did Pikes Peak for the first time. It was totally last minute. Um, Porsche had this program to run these uh, GT4, Cayman GT4 cars. And Travis Pastrana was doing it. And they had they had some other pro guy that was supposed to show up that I guess like backed out at the last minute. And I wasn't supposed to be available that weekend 
but my schedule changed. And so <laughs> got the phone call from Jeff Zwart, who's a, an awesome, if, 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 go follow him on Instagram, Zwart Speed. Um, been around, been around Porsche for a long time, raced Porsches at Pikes Peak forever. A, a good, I would call him a good friend now. Um, he was like, Hey, we need a pro guy to get in, to step into this deal. Like, are you, can you come and do it? And it was like the next week. So I'd missed all the testing. Um, and Pikes Peak is just a crazy, it's a totally crazy event. So, I mean, obviously the obvious stuff is nuts. Like it's 12 and a half miles, 156 corners. You're gaining like 5,000 feet of elevation up to the summit of Pikes Peak. So you start at 9,500 feet. You go to the summit of Pikes Peak at 14.1. So it's a high altitude venture, just like one way or the other. And, and yeah, if, if there are guardrails of which there's very few, they're all just for the cars that are coming down the hill on a normal day, like minivans that have lost their brakes to not drive off the side of the cliff. So they're all in the wrong spot for you driving up to avoid um, firing it off. So it's a, you know, it's a pretty high risk situation. Fortunately, I think, you know, bending into turn one flat out at Indy at like 240 gave me a little, there's, there's a little bit of a transitory risk, risk management effect um, in terms of figuring that out. But um, the, the thing actually showing up and doing the event that makes it so bizarre is that you never run the whole course from bottom to top until your race run. So all of the practice is broken into sections. So they break the track into three sections. You'll run the bottom section. Then, then the next day you run the middle section. Then the next day you run the top. You don't ever link any of these sections together. Uh, you qualify based on your time when you practice on the bottom section of the course. Um, and that you're, they open the park, the, the race day is the only day that they actually close the Pikes peak, like state park or whatever it is to, to the pub, to the general public. And so all of the practice days, you have to haul all your stuff up there. You have to get up there at like four o'clock in the morning. They go green for your section at five 30, like when the sun starts to peek through. And you got to get, you got to be packed up and get all your stuff back off the mountain by 9am when they open the park gates to general public that day. So you're the only practice you get is from like 5am to 8am. You do, you know, one run up your section with all the other drivers that are in your section. You wait till everybody's done. Then you drive back down. So we got, you're strapped into the car for three and a half hours in the morning for like three two minute laps of that one section of track you know so i was like what am i what am i getting myself into here but it was i think it's one of those things that either you kind of fall in love with it or or you never come back and uh for me it was certainly the the former of those two and and just an awesome experience i mean i've definitely you know over the last three or four years um you know i i Earlier in my career, I, I very I was very focused on just open wheel and IndyCar, and I didn't want to take the risk of doing something else and maybe not having it go well, and you know somehow that affecting like uh, my more full time career in mm-hmm. in, the, in in IndyCar racing or whatever. Um, and over the last like five years, I've just totally thrown that out the window and, and tried to go drive as much other stuff as I can. And, uh, Pikes Peak being Pikes Peak last minute at Pikes Peak being <laughs> one of those things. Um, and I, and I gotta say it's, it's made my experience in the sport, like exponentially better. So, um, yeah, that sounds awesome. That sounds beautiful. And also super scary. Is that the most treacherous place you've driven at high speeds? 
I think so. Just just out of you know, you you start to at first for your first lap up the hill, just everything seems super sketchy. <laughs> like yeah, because there's you know if you it, it's basically like if you most racetracks that you go to. Okay, like you're going to crash into something, but you know, you could have a problem, you could have a failure of like any kind at almost anywhere on the track and okay, you're going to plow into a wall or whatever, but you're going to get out and be fine. At Pike's Peak, it's like if you had if you just suddenly, you know, lost it on the straightaway or something, like you're driving off the side of a cliff. Sure. Like it's not, yeah, that you know, seems bad. <laughs> um, so, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, so it, it's you know, my ideal. first my, and I didn't know the car. I'd never driven the car before either, so that didn't help, but like when I was driving, the first section we did was the middle section, which you kind of, you, you, they call it Evo Corner now. So there's like these YouTube videos of this Evo just going like straight off and like barrel rolling down the side of Pike's Peak. Um, <laughs> guy was fine. That's good. I guess. I mean, I've got to <laughs> okay, that's good. That's one way to get I don't, a know, how for a I don't know how. Yeah. But, um, but basically there's all of these switchbacks. There's like 11 consecutive switchbacks as you get up, you basically in this section of track, you go above tree line and they, they call them the W's, these switchbacks going up the hill. And that basically the, the reason, the, the reason people go off in this one particular corner that now, unfortunately for that dude is named after him is, um, is because there's like going the same direction. Um, so like going whatever south going north instead of the other way around um like two corners prior it looks exactly the same like the site picture is exactly the same but the corner is flat out so you just stay full gas through this blind left and then you you know make a left and come up the other way and you go back the other way and the next time you're going that direction it's looks exactly the same but you got to slow down and it's another (laughs) blind left but you got to slow down for it and so you get like you have to literally almost count the corners on the track where you're at or like the sections to make sure that you like go flat out through the flat out one, but don't go flat out through the not flat out one. Um, so this is my first like introduction to the car, to the course, to like any of this. I had found it on a video game. So I played like 20 hours of driving, <laughs> you know, Sebastian, but even that, like I, I got in the sim, I got in, you know, my little home, home sim thing. And I'd played this game for like two hours and it hadn't made it to the top yet and realized that if you, if you had asked me what the first like four corners were, I would have had no idea. Like it was just, <laughs> yeah. it was all so much to consume. So I, so I was just like, okay, screw this. Like I'm going to run the first four corners and then I'm going to reset the game and I'm going to run the first four corners and reset the game. And then I'm going to run the next four corners and reset and like try to learn it in sections, just the whole the whole thing and that's what's cool about getting outside your comfort zone in these in these situations is you you just have to end up you start you do start to build different types of skills um you know whether it's just your mental approach or literal you know driving skills driving different stuff it's why i have you know it, to to circle back around to sort of the question that you were asking before you know who do i think today who am i really impressed with today um, it's Fernando Alonso for sure. Just the fact that he's gone out and done this, that he's taken the risk to go out and do this in the first place and that he's been so good doing so many different things. He went out, he won Le Mans first time out. Um, you know, when he was in a competitive car at Indy, he was like in the hunt to win the race. Like he, I qualified 
next year it was my mm-hmm. best starting starting position ever at Indy was that same year we qualified on the same row. It was actually pretty cool because then for the whole week between qualifying and the race, you do all the media stuff together with people on your row. So I ended up getting to know Fernando pretty well through that. Um, you know, going and doing Dakar, going and he's just yeah. he's just a racer, like flat out. He's a racer. Kimmy coming and doing the NASCAR race at Watkins Glen last weekend. I loved his interview. He got inter- asked in an interview. I posted it on my I reposted it on my Instagram stories because it was like it was just so refreshing. He got asked basically, like, why would you come and do this? And he just looked at the guy like, why would I not come and do this? Like, <laughs> like yeah, th- sure. just on such different pages in terms of how people look at this stuff from the outside versus how as racers who are just racers like how you look at it from the inside you can't take that out of a guy like Kimi Raikkonen Um, and for that reason the other driver that I'll mention um, is Kyle Larson in NASCAR like he's just I want to see that dude race the Indy 500 more than anybody Um, he's just just hyper talented everything he gets in he goes and hauls ass so um he's you know like 20 years ago you know there was like a real discussion about jeff gordon going to f1 Hmm, and kyle larson should if if there's a guy that's in that same kind of general maybe not about f1 but just in general about how far reaching could this guy's career be if he had opportunities in other places he's that guy now well, JR, um, I think you lied to us earlier because going as fast as you possibly can up and down a mountain sounds a lot more stressful than hosting a podcast. But we're <laughs> still going to try and get you out of your comfort zone. I'm going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we'll play a new game called Gas or Breaks. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Back with no breaks, special guest J.R. Hildebrand. We always like to play a game with our guests here, and since you're a driver, we thought we'd fire up the engines to play gas or brakes. Breaks. Was good, JD. That was good. All right, here's how it'll work, JR. We'll give you a topic. If you like something, hit the gas. If you don't like it, hit the brakes. First question we ask most guests around here gas or brakes? Pumpernickel toast. Do you like pumpernickel toast? This is a Toto Wolf, it's a Toto uh, Wolf favorite. favorite. You know, a staple of his breakfast. Every meal. On pumpernickel toast. Uh huh. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I, uh, I guess I, I'm. I'm intrigued, <laughs> but I'm not. I'm not sure it's going to be my jam. Okay. Okay. Interesting. You say that a lot of people take it with jam, actually, but uh, a lot harder to find than you would imagine. The first time we were having it around here, so Grant had to go to like four stores or something like that. To so, try to get some pumpernickel. if you ever visit, we'll make sure to have a few slices on hand. More this... common in the European series, I think, is what we're finding. <laughs> it here. seems to be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Next question maybe is a little bit complicated for you, so I wanted to ask: gas or brakes? Milk. 
drinking milk, gas or brakes. Is it good? Mm. Uh, I'm I'm gas on drinking milk as long as it's during the month of May. There we go. Yeah, Celebratory yeah. milk. I am I am otherwise I'm otherwise not dairy. So <laughs> I'm making okay. I'll make an exception for uh I'll make an exception for the for the good stuff uh in celebratory fashion. Okay. Yeah, it sounds uh, that's kind of what I expected to be the answer. Uh that seems I'll, to be the time people are most excited. I'm never going to I'm just going to say it right now. I'm never going to win any 500 and that's a good thing because I I would feel terrible if I drank like a big to thing turn it milk. down. I turn would down like have the worst <laughs> rest of the day. I would spend the rest of the day like huddled over on the couch. Like it'd be terrible. So, but I'd have to do. It. But I'd do it. Yeah, I'd do it. We were talking about this recently <laughs> actually like who's going to be the first one that Actually, writes down that they want oat milk or oat something. Milk, sure, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And somebody has got to happen. Yeah, one of these like, days. it's not going to be me. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not making that. I'm not making that call. Yeah, yeah. All right, next one. Uh, gas or brakes? Charles Leclerc catching Max Verstappen uh, in the Formula One Drivers Champion. Do you think he's got a chance in the second half of the season here? He's got a chance for sure. Uh, just because you know he's got a chance. One, you heard it there, right there. Yeah. So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I think it's very, I mean, I'm going to say breaks on this. Like, I don't think it's, I don't think it's likely, but um, you know, there's, there's enough reliability woes that are still, you know, possible to play out. And, you know, the difference between he's been, he's had, he's had the pace, right? Like the Ferrari definitely seems like it's there. So it just, it just seems like it's going to require a bit of an about face on both fronts to, for that to play out. Do you think Ferrari's success has been a little overlooked this season because they've had, obviously, these reliability issues, and it feels like they're in the championship chase, even if uh, Verstappen's running away with it a little bit? But compared to how Ferrari's been running the past couple of seasons, this is an incredible year for them. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, I guess I think that, I get the feeling that if Ferrari was a little bit just more in, um, in stride, the way that Red Bull is in terms of just competing at the front and strategy and and how all of those things, you know, Red Bull is just, they've been in this spot now for a few years in a row. So they're just rolling right into being in the same spot, albeit against a different contender, uh, you know, in Ferrari instead of Mercedes. So, but in terms of how they look at what they're doing, they're used to developing strategy with the assumption that they're going to be leading the race or, or winning the race. They're, they're just, they seem like they're sort of half a step ahead of Ferrari still in terms of how they look at transitioning from qualifying to the race, how they make their race plan. You know, they, they back up their race plan through the weekend a little bit further, whereas Ferrari seems like they kind of roll off the truck and they have a plan and they don't really change it. it, You know, this is probably oversimplifying it, but um, it seems like they've adapted a little less than Red Bull have to what, or they've, or they've just not been quite in the swing of, you know, what are the things that are really going to matter for them to be able to stand on the top step on, on Sundays. And so um, that feels like they just don't in part, they just don't have kind of quite, they don't quite have the recent experience in the same way that Red Bull has at going to all of these tracks that are currently on the schedule and how those things play out. And um, you know, the Red Bull, Red Bull and, and Mercedes now that they're kind of, you know, knocking on the door at least, um, you know, they've just, they've been in these exact scenarios over the last couple of years. So it feels like they've just got a little bit of catching up to do from that perspective. 
Yeah, you can tell that uh, they're getting used to their decisions mattering a lot more, and the speed at which they ma- uh, happen uh, mattering a lot more. For you as a driver, what's the difference like when you're in like a championship caliber car and when you're in a car that's going to be more in the midfield? How do you approach that differently? Yeah, I mean, I think that ultimately as a driver, you you still focus on a lot of the same things. So you're you know, you you know that there are some things that are in your control and you know that there are some things that are not in your control. And the more aligned that you can be around the things that are in your control, the less you'll be distracted by the things that aren't in your control. And and it just ends up turning out that the implications of those things are different when you're a championship contender. um, You know, there are all right, it's not even like like the the consequences of being on one side of that or the other. You know, if you're if you're a driver that can really maximize your in and out laps, that can understand what's going on with the car in a way that you're developing the car over the course of the race. You know, making the right changes. Um, you know, I think Lewis among the existing crop of of drivers, I still think is is kind of the best at. And, and occasionally it bites them, but more off on the, on the aggregate, he's the guy that helps his team help him get the most out of his situations, you know, in terms of strategy and tire wear and tire usage and when they're going to pit and how that's going to play out and all of those things. You know, you've seen Lewis be able, be in a position to have the, the, trust of his team for him to make some calls in terms of, you know, the intermediate, just, you know, I think it'll just go to the end. Like let's not pit, mm-hmm. um, you know, some situations like that. So uh, that comes with, that comes with really understanding, you know, what your role is, what you have control over. And, and some guys, some guys go that extra step above and beyond to take a real assertive, like leadership position within the decision-making tree of how their team is going to be making some decisions. You know, I, I think it's where experience just within the sport factors in you know, cause you look at, you know, Sebastian and Fernando as, as the other guys that kind of immediately come to mind in that, in that respect. So, um, you know, I think that ultimately you're in, you're, you have to just focus on the things that you're in control of. Um, and so from that perspective, you know, I think the way that when you see, when you see guys that are running in the mid pack that are, that are excelling in the mid pack, they're doing a lot of the same things that the guys that are running at the front are excelling at running up front. And the differences between the guys that are excelling in the mid pack versus the guys that aren't and the guys that are excelling at the front and the guys that aren't are often, you know, a lot of the same things. Sounds good. Uh, next gas or breaks question for you. The Las Vegas Grand Prix gas or breaks starting at next season. I think it's going to be during the Thanksgiving weekend. Looks to be some expensive ticket prices uh, at this point. You excited for the Las Vegas Grand Prix? You know, I think the Las Vegas Grand Prix, at least, is definitely going to be full gas. Uh, and there's, yeah. yeah, there's oh, going to yeah. be a lot oh, yeah. of a lot of people at the Las Vegas Grand Prix that are full gas. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure that it's something that I'm going to attend in year <laughs> one. Just uh, it sound, you know, it seems like it's there's a, I think a, a high percentage chance of a lot of crazy crazy stuff going on down there but uh but yeah i mean it's gonna be it's about it's it's time that we that we really know what a race in in las vegas down on the strip looks like and i think we're gonna find out next year 
that'd be really cool to see. How do you feel about all, uh, there's starting to be a lot more, uh, formula one races here in the United States, obviously. And that kind of comes hand in hand with like people looking sideways at some classic F1 tracks like Monaco or maybe spa saying, do we actually need to be racing here anymore? How do you feel about new American Grand Prix taking the place of these older established classic tracks? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm breaks on that because I think that ultimately there, while there is obviously a necessity to um, take advantage of this sort of shift in attention that we're getting, that, that formula one is receiving here. um, It's also, it it has to, I think we, we had this discussion really fired up for me at the Abu Dhabi, you know, the kind of end of last year and how exactly all that played out. I, I'm not a belief. I'm not a, I'm not a conspiracy theorist here in terms of, thinking that any of that was because of the Netflix effect or something. (laughs) But I do think that this idea that I'll put it this way, most other major motorsports, and I'll just, I'll say NASCAR and IndyCar in particular have already had to sort of grapple with what side of the fence they're on when it comes to pure racing and entertainment. And NASCAR has chosen deliberately to be more on the entertainment side. IndyCar has done a bunch of different stuff over the last decade to kind of figure out what the right mix of those two things are. You know, we've had, you know, uh, double file restarts at every restart. You know, we've we've done some various different things, the way that red flags are deployed, the way that, you know, different things work over the course of the weekend to try to make sure that you end under green as frequently as possible. You know, these are all sort of things that, we'll just say American motorsports has had to deal with. And that's been because, because you're trying to kind of understand how much of this needs to be built around entertainment value versus how much, how much do people care about this just simply as a, as a racing product. Mm -hmm. Um, Formula one has not really thought that hard about it because they haven't had to for a long time. Mm -hmm. And now not because they have to necessarily now, but because it's evident that, some of the additional attention, this increased attention that's being paid to F1 is because of the entertainment value. Um, Do they start to swing the whole product a little bit more in that direction? I think that ultimately is what's behind at least part of the thought process here of, well, we can create some new tracks that might be more entertaining to watch than Monaco, sure. Monaco yeah. for sure, but maybe even yeah, Spa or you know some of these other kind of historic venues on the circuit. Um, you know they can they can absolutely demand a much higher rights fee for new circuits because the just the whole property of the thing, the business of the events and the promotion of the events and spectatorship and viewership and all that stuff is different for an event like that than it is for Spa. Um, I think to me, I, I kind of. I'm on the Max Verstappen wavelength here, which is in the long run, there's a history and a, and a purity of kind of like where the sport comes from and, and what it means to be on pole and win at places like Monaco and uh, Spa-Francorchamps that, um, you know, we have to kind of look out for and that there's a balance to, to play between these two things. Uh, there's a lot of tracks, frankly, that F1 goes to that kind of don't mean anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In terms of so so really what this is coming down to is just money. And um you know, I think that I think that they have to at least, you know, maybe it becomes a rotating thing or something like that. Like 
you know, we're going to rotate between some of these historic tracks over, over, over the years or something that that's a bit of a compromise, but, um, you know, I think F1 will continue to expand until they decide that they can't, you know, it doesn't financially make sense to do it. And, and we'll see over the next few years what that actually looks like. Okay. You've, you're hitting on, it's a great segue into our next gas or brakes question. We're talking about entertainment value sprint races on the sat on Saturdays versus traditional qualifying gas or brakes. I'm okay. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm gas on, I'm, I'm like, you know, three quarter throttle on this, um, <laughs> that I don't, I don't mind the sprint race format at all, but they need to just say that they, they should still award a point for pole for qualifying for the sprint race. I guess that's kind of where I'm at with this. Okay. Like the qualifying for the sprint race should still matter. Just like qualifying, like in terms of how we, how we rate pole positions and, and from a, from like a statistical perspective, I think like they need to re fluff the thing so that that's the qualifying, the more traditional qualifying session. And I'm actually okay. If they want to change the format for the qualifying, like if they want to make it one lap qualifying or something, I'm good with that. Like, you know, we've, we've messed around with how qualifying works a bunch over the last 20 years or whatever. So that's the consistency there doesn't matter to me, but, um, that'd be my only addition. Cause I do think it's great for the, you know, for a lot of the venues that you go to, there's not a lot else that's going on besides the F1 race over the weekend. So I think for the fans that are in attendance, especially for places like Silverstone, these places where you, where they bet they really benefit from having a lot of people show up for the race. I mean, I can imagine Dakota, if they had a sprint race on Sunday, a Saturday, for sure the attendance would go up and and that's sort of good yeah. for everybody. So I'm down with the, I'm down with the sprint race format. I think they just need to, you know, reallocate the way that the pole position is defined. Do you think a reverse grid would kind of spice up the sprint races? Cause a lot of times it feels like the pole winner ain't going to, is going to finish out the sprint race in the front. And maybe the people behind don't want to jeopardize their position for the real race on Sunday. When we've seen the faster cars start in the back, it can make for an exciting sprint race. Yeah, I guess I, I'm torn about that. I guess I would say, generally speaking, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of the reverse grid orientation. Like that to me starts to really throw the balance of entertainment versus like, you know, a deserved outcome. Sure. Yeah. On that spectrum, that's way to the entertainment (laughs) side, right? And so, oh, you won your starting last. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's weird incentives. I mean, I, you know, to, for me to even like explore that further, you have to start screwing around with like, how do you, how do you maintain the incentive for qualifying for the qualifying, qualifying up high for the sprint race, right? Like, maybe then you're you're offering equal points for qualifying first in the sprint race or qualifying for this first for the sprint race as opposed to finishing first for the sprint race so at least you have some degree of like because i you know ultimately you're just going to get into a situation here where it becomes this strategic thing for how the best teams qualify like outside the top you know they're going to all be trying to qualify wherever is going to put them in the best chance in the best spot to win the sprint race which is not up front in the sprint race so you might be underestimating how much fun it could be to see them going as slowly around the track as possible the only (laughs) the only racing i've ever really done in my life was actually on a motorcycle was a slow race where the entire point was to get (laughs) 
their last. What? Yeah, it was like every, we all lined up, and the point was to cut, cross it last, but you couldn't put a foot on the ground, right? It's very hard to go very, very slowly on a motorcycle. So it's your speed is your friend in terms of balance. So we all went as slowly as possible while having to stay upright. Now, that doesn't really work when you have four I would wheels. Rather see, I, would, I, would, I would rather see the 22 Formula One drivers all do that, yeah, that than, yeah. than do this in a Formula One car. I, actually, I mean, it'd so. be, I, I would like to see them do a slow two-wheel race. It's If you ever have a chance to see it, it's, I mean, it's, it's funny. I'm putting it on my list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. You know, that's that's another one. To, <laughs> as you do your sir, do your circuit of all these other races, exactly. add it, add just, add it I'll, on there. I'll just add it on. Yeah. I'll all right, taking on. it I'll... off the track, uh, Jr. Gas or brakes on road trips? <laughs> oh, I'm full gas on road trips. Pedal Love road metal. tripping. I drove my 1960 Coupe DeVille from Boulder to Indy and back. Whoa. Uh, for the Indy 500 last last year. Yeah, last year. So, so you drove I'm all the tripper. way across the United States to go to the Indy 500, but you just walked up to testing. It woke up. Uh, inherits. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Back how, in the day. Look, how, look how far I've come. <laughs> okay, are you, when you're out there, are we, what, are we podcasting? Are we audiobooking? Is it just road tunes? It's like nothing but classic rock. What is on um, the radio for these? Well, in the, in the CTSV, it's cruise control at 100, send it podcasts you know spotify whatever um in the coupe de ville it was like all hands on deck going 75 or uh, you know maybe 80 maybe um the thing is like ear ear earplugs um it's got like you know open pipes you know dragging on the ground basically so um there was not a lot of uh I was I was like just I was just as mentally taxed after, at the end of each day doing that than I am at the end of 500 miles <laughs> in IndyCar, okay. basically. Okay. Probably not Bluetooth capabilities in a 1960 car. I do as well. I do have a Bluetooth speaker in the car, but I have to run it like wide open just to hear it <laughs> over the car with earplugs in. So that wasn't really it. Be, it just became my phone charger, basically. Yeah. What do you use for navigating? Google Maps, Apple Maps, Waze, or are you just freestyling it? Google Maps and Waze at the same time. Okay. Makes sense. All right. Uh, also off off the track, gas or brakes on race car racing movies. Like watching, you know, mm. uh, whatever. We just watched Driven, which A I wouldn't classic. recommend. No. Uh, but we Driven's watched it. terrible. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> We learned that we learned that the hard way for our show last week. We learned that the hard way. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry about that, guys. Yeah. Um, In general, that, though, do you like a racing movie? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, grew up on Days of Thunder for sure. Okay, that might be um, our next one if you want to come back for the film session. We we have to bounce I, yeah, back. I, I, I could do I could do a, a really strong breakdown of Days of Thunder. Oh, that sounds awesome. Um, I, I have actually been known occasionally to holler out some. Uh, Cole Trickle verbiage over the radio during races. So, oh, I love it. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's definitely that. That hits home. Um, yeah, lots of great, lots of great races. Uh, Grand Prix Le Mans are the two OGs, right? Yeah. Um, winning with Paul Newman, another awesome one. Uh, more recently, Ford versus Ferrari Rush. Uh, I actually, this is totally random, uh, and I won't go into any major detail. But this past weekend, I was at the Mon- at Monterey Car Week. Uh, I got the chance to drive a 1973 uh, Ferrari 365 
uh, uh, Daytona Competizione. And uh, the chap who was looking after it was Ken Miles' son, Peter Miles. Really? Um, so Ken Miles of kind of Ford versus Ferrari fame. Um, so that was actually, that was a really awesome little um, wow. part of the experience of my weekend this weekend. And uh, made me think, made me think back. We had, we had a number of conversations about um, kind of the good old days, which was, which was fun. Love those movies. I really liked Ford versus Ferrari, but I also, I was, I was watching it with, some buddies or whatever. I was the only person who like knew the story for them. They, they're not that, you know, they, they, they weren't like kind of students of the history of racing. and didn't know, but I knew how it ended with Ken miles kind of getting robbed. And it, it almost took away my enjoyment of the film because I was just sitting there like, so stre- I was like, I couldn't believe how stressed and how angry I was the entire movie, knowing like how it would go in the end. You know, I was like, so I, I like kind of ruined it for me. But I that's why Days of Thunder is better. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, just a couple of more questions for you, JR, then we'll let you go. Gas or brakes? You mentioned it earlier with uh, your wagon there, but how about drifting and drift racing? That looks so awesome to me. I'm into it. I actually I competed at a couple of Formula D events uh, back in 2013. So I was in like a, you know, 800 horsepower Camaro. Um, I'm all, it's it's the most fun. It's like probably the most fun you possibly have in a race car. Like and and it's and it's worth noting that like a proper Formula D comp car is literally one of the most fun types of race cars that you could ever imagine driving because they're just because they're so they're built to drift, right? Like it's not it's not like getting in a high horsepower street car and like chucking it around. Like no, these things are they don't do anything but drift. And when you get them sideways and you're, you know, at the top of fourth gear with the wheel speed at like 150 miles an hour while you're, you know, going through the banking at Irwindale at, you know, the car, you know, front wheel speeds like 80, wow. you know, rear wheel speeds like a buck 50. Um, there's, there's kind of no, there's no better feeling than just being apps. Like you feel like you're screaming and you're probably not actually saying anything where you're just like, yeah, like, <laughs> you know, it's just wide open, um, is, is a pretty awesome, pretty awesome motorsport experience for sure. That sounds, sounds very cool. Uh, the first time you drift must, uh, must be a weird feeling, right? To like intentionally be putting the car unstable like that. Yeah, it is, but but it's like immediately the cars are right at home doing it. So it's it like you get over you get over that hesitation very quickly. All right, I know you're a big uh, Bay Area sports fan. Uh, the Giants. Uh, who else? You like the Niners, and I know you like the Golden State Warriors. Obviously, they're reigning champions right now. Gas or brakes? The Warriors winning back to back titles this coming season. I'm gas, man. Oh yeah, I think there you go. They're yeah. I mean, they're for sure they're in the hunt. They say healthy. Watch out. That's exactly it. right. Like the confidence. Yeah, hell, yeah, health is the key, right? But you know, you still got, still got Curry. Uh, still Just got the Curry. Sun. I mean, the, the, the yeah, world. yeah, it's the yeah. gravitational pull. The sun got a good young crop. I mean, yeah, these guys are ready to roll. They're ready to roll. We got one last question for you, uh, Jr. Okay. Um, you mentioned you've done a ton of different racing disciplines. You've been to tracks all over the world. What's one race that you would like to do at some point in your career? Hmm. Um, 24 hours of Nürburgring is kind of yeah. the one that, that really sticks out to me. Uh, Le Mans for sure. But I think, you know, honestly, even between those two, I just, I think the experience of running the 24 hour at, you know, on the Nordschleife, like that's just such an iconic 
such an iconic venue. I mean, there's just, there's just nothing like it that, that I think, you know, there's, there's plenty of things, there's plenty of other things I could think of, but that's definitely the first one that pops into my mind. I, I, okay. So some buddies of mine and I, a bunch of years back did on Gran Turismo, did the 24 hours of Le Mans in real time. We did it in 24 hours and we raced it just because we were like idiots <laughs> and like none of us had kids yet or anything like that. Right. We were like, we did it from like noon to noon on a Saturday to Sunday. And then we've been trying to do the 24 hours of Nurburgring, which first of all, you have to play so much Gran Turismo to unlock the level. It's like, it's like, yeah. hu- it's yeah. like hundreds of hours of race. It's insane. We just start races and like, let them go and like go into the other room. And, but it's also impossible. Like, I'm like, guys, we can't do this. The Nurburgring is so long. There are so many corners. It's so hard to memorize. And it's so unforgiving if you go even yep. the least bit off the track in the video game, much less in real life. I like, I'm like, I literally don't know. I was like, I don't think I'm good enough at this video game to do this stupid <laughs> fake thing. Like, I, like, I, but, so, I don't know. So if you, can, if you ever do it for real, I mean, I'll huge huge kudos oh i'll come i'll come if you do it for me okay i mean you, I'm, I'm in, gonna hold I'm you in. to it i'm in i'm okay in. yeah <laughs> jr thank you so much uh for taking the time please everybody if you've been enjoying the interview follow jr on twitter on instagram at jr hildebrand we'll have to have you back on when we do a days of thunder rewatch what else you got going on uh that we should be looking out for jr Man, I guess um, I'm actually just about to jump and record our uh, the our our, our fellow uh, athletically hosted um, IndyCar podcast for the the hyphen race. Um, so yeah, excited excited for that. That'll be continuing on through the rest of the year. And um, otherwise, yeah, look forward to look forward to watching Days of Thunder. There we yeah. go. Can't there wait. We go. All right, thank you so much. We're going to take our last break here. When we come back, we'll be talking about the Belgian Grand Prix. Stick around. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shea Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondery. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f-ing best. Each week, Shea Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture themed trophies for six basketball related activities. Trophies like the Don- Dominic Toretto, I live my life a quarter mile at a time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina wine mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service that you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Back with no breaks, J.R. Hildebrand. What a great guy. What a nice guy. Slipstream team is saying pole position for best guest on no breaks. I mean, yeah. I mean, he was terrific. I also – it was still during the break. Like – you always, every time in the intro you say our local F1 expert, and then like JR comes on, and I'm just like, 
my God, this guy knows like a hundred times more about motorsports than I do. It's like so humbling to talk to JR. He's, I, so it's, yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah, luckily uh, he doesn't live locally. So it's no, still, or else I'd be out of a holds. gig. I'd be out of a gig. Yeah, I'd be like, it, yeah. Hey, uh, speaking of Formula One, remember that sport? Remember oh, that sport? Gosh. Well, when, yeah, the summer break time. is finally done. So and F1 is back. So we'll take a quick look at the standings here. Haven't changed since the last time we looked at the standings, but it's nice to have some coverage here. Graydon, Max Verstappen, he's got a massive lead over Charles Leclerc uh, in the driver's standing, whereas the Red Bull racing team has a little bit, I guess it's actually bigger lead <laughs> over Ferrari there in the team standings, but it feels closer. We got nine races left on the calendar, and racing resumes this weekend in Belgium with the first leg of a triple header. We got the classic schedule coming up. Over the weekend, practice Friday, qualification on Saturday, race on Sunday. Last time we were at Spa was a wet and weird one. Oh. Had a three-lap fake race. Max <laughs> the worst Verstappen. race of the year. <laughs> yeah. The worst race of the year. Yeah. Uh, right year. after right after we launched the podcast, too, we were like, man, I, what a fun first half of the season. We got Spa coming up. It's going to be awesome. And as I said at the time, my favorite race on the calendar. I was up, more man. excited about Spa last year than, I, than at any other race of the season up to that point and it it did disappoint it disappointed yeah that one was a bummer no doubt about it but max verstappen p1 george russell in the williams p2 and lewis hamilton finished in p3 everybody got half points for their finishes so we had to see like (laughs) 267.5 every time we showed those dumb boards uh during the last year first question Graydon, you think we're getting a real race i think we're getting a real race this year there's what a a, perhaps a slight chance of rain yeah i googled it over the weekend (laughs) i googled it it, the weather at spa francorchamps we got rain perhaps on friday rain perhaps on saturday but sunday it's just looking like clouds Uh, baby I think I think it'll be fine. It's not as if I mean it does rain out there, but it's not. I don't think we'll have even the rain they're predicting is not like last year, where de- unraceable downpour. A little bit of rain isn't going to stop them from racing. It's different than what the what they were facing last year. I which, love to hear it. There have been updates uh, at the track. Yeah, there've been a lot. Of uh, how are these going to change things? Do you think? I mean. I, I, as far as – so the real answer is is I actually think we don't know, and the teams even acknowledge they don't know. I think this is such a well-known course. It's something that so many of these guys have been at so many times. They've raced at throughout their careers, you know, not just in F1 but in the in the more junior series. So they're very familiar with But there's parts of the tracks that have been repaved, you know, parts where I think they're going to see, you know, they might approach it a little differently. There's some things like changes to the walls and safety measures that are going to not really impact the racing. And also, similarly, you know, do I really think like the changes to Eau Rouge and how they're making that safer, will that really impact the race itself? No, not really. I think it just means that you're less likely to have a really ugly incident there which has you know we've you know we've had in recent years so that you know so that so hopefully we just see what we see is like a safe fun race but there will be i think a little bit of a learning curve on friday in particular as guys you know hit some parts of the track where they're maybe used to certain amounts of traction or you know things like that and maybe it, it feels a little different under there under the wheels yeah hopefully we get a race first and foremost and first hopefully and foremost. uh it's also a banger so we can remember why spa's on the calendar in the, in the first place after spa though we go to the Netherlands for the Dutch Grand Prix September 4th that's followed by the Italian Grand Prix on September 11th Three races in a row, triple header, Graydon. Is that going to be the season? Like, after these three races, are we basically going to be like, 
we know what's going down. Well, it's two out of the three. So I will say that Ferrari over the course of the season has managed to find a little bit of balance with the car and has been more competitive at higher speed tracks than we would have thought earlier in the season. Oppositely, Red Bull has taken a lot of points, taken top steps at more, you know, tracks that are more slow speed corners, more twisty. However, it still seems like the balance is such that Red Bull's faster at the faster tracks and Ferrari's better at the tracks that where there's more corners, slower corners. And that would seem to be two out of one would favor uh, Red Bull here. You know, that that Spa and then Monza in Italy would favor Red Bull, but the Netherlands might favor Ferrari. That being said, I mean, that ha- we, we, it hasn't followed that script this year. Sure. So that, you know, so it just hasn't how it's gone down. But if if that if we're looking at it like you know max wins two out of the next three you know that's you're probably cooked at that point i yeah, mean jr earlier in the show said that charles has a chance I, he's being pretty generous in saying that it it's going to take it over till it's over yeah they're going to have i mean ferrari would have to spank them down the stretch to get back in this and that doesn't feel like the smart bet all we need is a, all we need is one Verstappen DNF uh, in these three races for it to continue to be spicy in the second mm, sort I of think half if of Charles, the season. I think if Charles can take two out of the three races and Max isn't on the top step in them, I mean, it at least makes it like like it still is overwhelmingly big, likely that Max wins, but it makes it like a it makes a little bit more drama. It puts a little bit more pressure on Max to deliver versus just cruise home. You know what I mean? That which I think is the the difference we're talking about here. You know? Yep. So we got the race this weekend at Spa. I guess we'll be back. We haven't really planned this, but looking like the thirtieth of August uh, to break down. That race uh, yeah. next week. Otherwise, you can follow Graydon on Twitter at Mr. Gordian. That's where you'll find out that he would quote rather listen to a sus song at a bussin' time of year <laughs> than a bussin' song at a sus time of year. I, for real, for real. Th- this is no. This is. Uh, yeah, you know, I was just. It was just trying to get in a little. You know, meme action here with the youths and they're sort of there. I was just trying to speak to the youths here. It's not necessarily how I feel. I just, I was trying to chat with Gen Z here. Yeah, I saw you. Come down this on was, their this level. wasn't even just like a public tweet. This was a response to some somebody you were tweeting it. I was yeah, like, yeah, I, I, somebody I gotta, I gotta mark this down. <laughs> I'd rather listen to a sus song at a bussin' time of year. Than a bussin' song at a sus time of year. Yeah, Do you think real, we're having a real. is right now a bussin' time of year? Yeah, or a I sus think the summertime. I think it's like you'd rather listen to like a like a like a a trash song at like a summertime barbecue <laughs> than like a really banging song in like in a, like a winter storm. That's what I'm. <laughs> this is what I'm getting at here. <laughs> I think that's the, true. I don't know. That, I would that's say what I'm getting at here. First half of August, sus time of year. Second half of August, bussin' time of year. So it's, it's a weird month to me. Yeah. That's not my favorite one. It's not my favorite one. More of a fall man. More of a fall man. I love a. I that's love a bus in time of year. I, that's a bus in time of year. That's, I love fun fall layers, my friend. I love the crisp weather. I'm all about it. All right, stay tuned uh, to No Breaks next week on the podcast. Graydon is going to break down months of the year by sus and bussin. You can subscribe to the Athletic <laughs> at theathletic.com/slash/nodunks for a dollar a month for six months get every one of our podcasts including jr hildebrand's indycar podcast with the race ad free good stuff also follow no dunks everywhere at no dunks inc that's inc 
had a new no bunts earlier this week talking Yankees and Braves. That was a great one. We got Is This Good with me and Skeets tomorrow, 1 p.m. Eastern. And we've got an NBA Jam-themed show with Skeets and Lee coming up Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern. JD, is that uh, is that right? We're doing a morning a morning show for that? Uh, no dunks? Yes, I believe so. All yes. right. Sounds good. Uh, busy schedule, and we're getting back to racing. In the meantime, Clipper Bros. You heard it here first. Have a great time. Turn up. Love you guys. Awesome. Thanks for joining us, and remember, be fast or be last. Yeah.